0: Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to Ask a Leader. It's May 12, 2015 edition. I'd like to thank everybody who has supported our recent spring fund drive and I hope that others of you come through with your own donation. You know how to reach us on KUCI.org. And uh, you may not get a premium, but uh, you'll get a good feeling inside that you help sustain us a bit further on. KUCI operates on a shoestring, and your dollars help make us sound as good as we can possibly sound on our show, UCI Professor David Feldman, Chair of the Department of Planning, Policy, and Design, offers lessons on effective institutional responses to help us, all of us, manage our severe drought. Then, Dr. Mark Lerner, pediatrician and medical officer for the Orange County Superintendent of Schools, will talk about e-cigarettes and childhood immunizations. Evaporation and vaping, all in one show. Don't go away, we'll be right back. My first guest is UCI professor of social ecology, David Feldman. He's the chair of the Department of Planning, Policy, and Design, and professor as well of political science. David Feldman specializes in water resources management and policy, global climate change policy, ethics, and environmental decisions, adaptive management, adaptive is going to be, that's going to be the go-to word here, and sustainable development. His current research is focused on the sources of value conflicts over allocation and distribution of water and the difficulties in achieving institutional reform to promote equity and water management in the U.S. and elsewhere. Now you can see why he's on the show today. He completed his B.A. in political science and English at Kent State and his master's and Ph.D. in political science at the University of Missouri at Columbia. He joined... UCI's School of Social Ecology in 2007. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Professor David Feldman.
1: Good to be here.
0: Well, your hydrological engineering colleague, James Famiglietti, has been on Ask a Leader a number of times, has been in the big wide media about the dire straits that Californians, as well as folks around the world, face with respect to the potable water shortage. You, David Feldman, with your extensive body research as a social scientist, take a less alarmist tack here, and that is the path down which we're going to proceed today. So you've studied extensively uh, the millennium drought in Australia. There's many lessons that um, you have learned from there, and I'd like to break it all down that there's four different approaches, and uh, we want to talk about how those might or might not fit in with what... uh, What We're coping and what we can work with here. There's the public education campaign, restrictions on water use, substitution targets, and water pricing. So let's pick up the public education campaign. How is the media doing so far with that end of it? In
1: California, um, it could probably be doing better. Uh, One of the lessons that I take from the Australian experience in the millennium drought is we're talking about a highly developed, highly industrialized society, Uh, very much like California. When you go to Melbourne or Sydney, Adelaide, you don't feel that you're really in a very radically different place. And yet people in cities use anywhere from 40 percent to 50 percent less water per person than we do without any visible decline in their quality of life. And I think that comes about from learning how to live with less water and learning how to use it better.
0: Well, um, in part, um, you're saying in California media, I'm seeing the New York Times, for goodness sakes, is doing maybe even a better job than the, the California media is doing. I mean, so some people from outside the region are maybe doing the job of the local media, no? Very
1: possibly, and I think part of the problem is that we have really done a very good job historically of managing water in California. We really do have a well-managed system and some very bright people and talented people who are managing it. And as a result, for a long time, we've been able to take it sort of for granted. Oh, you know, they'll figure it out, and they'll get it to work, and we don't really have to worry very much.
0: So uh, the well developed water markets that allowed trade to farmers in the greatest need that's that's one thing you were you were talking about um, this in your research so we're we're looking at you know the urban users looking at okay, we're a fraction of the larger agricultural mix so how is the media giving enough of a breakdown of the the sources of the the, the we'll call it the water footprint that do we I mean, all the talk is about almonds, but isn't there a a B factor that is drawing that water down much, much more? And is the media giving enough attention, or is it just sort of that uh, kind of uh, radical grassroots coverage that's been more attentive?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's really a couple sides to the story. I mean, you see various statistics thrown around, but without any real context. Uh, that agriculture contributes, what is it, less than 4% to California's gross domestic product but uses 80% of the water. Um, That's true uh, if you look at it in that sort of gross figure. But if you go up to the Central Valley where agriculture is central to people's quality of life and where the food that's produced goes into a global marketplace, It's far more significant an impact than that. And I think we don't want to simply say, well, you know, if uh, if we use less water for agriculture, there'd be plenty for the rest of us. Uh, Likewise, to flip it around, uh, you often hear that outdoor landscaping is really only a fraction of California's total water use. True enough, but cities get their water often from locally sourced um, places and as a percentage of urban water uses what we use for water on our lawns and our gardens is not insignificant within our local region so i think we have to get away from looking at water as this large regional resource and we have to think about it as a more distributed resource how are each of us in our communities and our farms and our areas of the state going to use the locally sourced supplies most efficiently.
0: Okay. So that that brings us into some of the institutional parts that you're talking that we'd like to uh, look at now. Well, one one of them is I just want to get this one out of the way. It's a big one. Is that there is uh, a, well, it's not the institution, it's, just, it's the demographic, which is somewhat institutional, is that we've got a much larger population growth with which to contend than southeastern Australia. So that's, that's a big one.
1: It's a big one, but it's not an insurmountable one. Let's take the city of Los Angeles. 1970, Los Angeles had about uh, 25% fewer people than it has now, yet it uses less water per capita. So on balance, it's using the same amount of water as a city. Why is that? Because there were conservation programs developed that were promoted by public education and outreach, by uh, you know, uh, more uh, prudent landscaping, uh, by uh, water pricing systems that incentivized conservation, and by a number of measures. So uh, even with that footprint and even with more people, Uh, If we used water more efficiently, there'd probably be uh, a better allocation of it than there is. Having said that, also have to caution, we are in the midst of a very significant drought. And the kind of drought we're in might be a recurring phenomenon. So it only puts the pressure on us even more to use the water we have more prudently.
0: A recurring or a protracted phenomenon in this stretch we're in now
1: a little bit of both right now it's certainly protracted we're into uh four years of uh quite uh, if not unprecedented certainly a very severe drought some forecasts say this uh, drought could uh, linger much longer uh there's not total agreement on that but there seems to be a pretty solid consensus that droughts like this are probably going to be pretty common in the future
0: for those of you who've just joined us, you're tuned to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. And it's my pleasure to have on this portion of the hour my guest, UCI urban planning professor David Feldman, speaking with authority and with gravity and a reassurance about how we are able to manage our way out of the water shortage in this protracted drought so uh, the, the institutional barriers here, we have, uh, we've got a number of things working uh, the, working differently. We have the, uh, Os- Southeast Australia had exemplary interagency and interjurisdictional collaboration, but we are a very fragmented crowd here in the southwestern part of the country. And, and There's a great deal of competition, as we've been alluding a little bit to, in water management so how how are we going to approach some of those exemplary interjurisdictional collaborations? We're, we're talking a little bit about public awareness and the media's coverage, but uh, we've we've got so many different water districts. The water districts are being challenged by uh, many of the residents. Glendale is stepping up where San Juan Capistrano is already challenged that. So where do we get uh, where from where we are to approaching, some of those models that southeastern Australia was able to uh, institutionalize.
1: It might sound a little strange, but I'm actually uh, taking some optimistic messages from the actions of the governor and the state legislature over the past couple of years prior to this drought becoming very serious by revising the uh, state water planning process in California. Uh, and producing a number of documents and a number of uh, policies that encourage inter-jurisdictional cooperation on water management, and in particular, to be very specific, to uh, propose the funding and the incentivizing of collaboration among uh, local water utilities and municipalities to basically ante in and cooperate on Water projects that will help the state become more resilient and more sustainable. I'm talking about things like rainwater harvesting, like groundwater recharge, like uh, reuse of wastewater, both for potable purposes and for non potable purposes. Uh, It's definitely on the table. You know, there's only so much you can do. Uh, in terms of encouraging these kinds of things, uh, the heavy lifting is going to have to be done, uh, probably by uh, local utilities and municipalities, with the support of ratepayers and voters, to collaborate on these projects. But it's definitely something that's recognized by uh, decision makers around the state.
0: Well, one thing about the rainwater—the yes, the rainwater harvesting—I noticed uh, with this last, we we finally got another rain event. But I I wasn't capturing a whole lot. And I I mean, I'm encouraged that it's now become a a sort of a a public works effort that uh, in the Los Angeles basin, that it's not about trucking out that stormwater runoff as fast as possible to offshore, but it's about retaining it now. But we need the rain to fall before we can harvest it. So in a drought, that's a little bit of a sort of a paradox.
1: We do. But uh, you plan for a drought when you're not in a drought. And this means that we need to rethink our infrastructure, particularly in urban areas, so that when drought comes, we're more resilient. If we had permeable surfaces for water to soak in and replenish aquifers, if we had the ability to capture that stormwater and uh, use it for non-potable purposes, gardens for local farming, for parks and recreational facilities, for golf courses. Then we wouldn't have to tap into our precious potable supplies. So you need to think ahead. You don't simply look at the drought as being uh, the driver of changing water policy. We really have to think Uh, water management as an integrated resource. You know, a lot of uh, utilities in California will tell you that they don't think of water as stormwater and wastewater and surface water and groundwater. They think of it as water. It's an integrated resource. And stormwater harvesting not only replenishes our water supply but keeps pollutants out of our estuaries and our inland waters.
0: Yes, and the permeable question looms a little bit when these entrepreneurs are seizing on the the prospect of putting paving everybody's lawns with the astroturf, which is, that's becoming a less permeable sort of surf. So we've got to, I guess, when you're talking about integrative systems and resource management, then thinking that one clearly through, and so, uh, maybe more incentives on native plants where it will remain a, a permeable property versus rolling out the AstroTurf.
1: I agree totally. You know, uh, it's a funny thing, but in the uh, Old West, uh, you know, over a century ago, when uh, there wasn't rain, people would uh, pay money for extravagant solutions, including people that would come in and promise that they could... uh, you know, generate ways of making it rain. Uh, in in a sense, the kinds of uh, efforts that are being made to uh, solve the problem of drought in one fell swoop with one panacea, I think is the same sort of thing. And we have to, you know, buyer beware. We want to be careful about doing things that uh, may have other consequences that are, are not desirable.
0: So... Australia has, Southern Australia Australians in general, I, I like to look at these kinds of cultural ways in which um, we all differ. Some societies allow themselves, in a sense, to be regulated. To, they're adaptable to the, the changes that are, are necessary. So um, how, David Feldman, do you look at Fostering more adaptability amidst our liber- libertarian demographic.
1: Well, you know, is, Australia isn't entirely non-libertarian. Uh, There's certainly no, a, we are. A, it's a strong individualistic culture. I think it really comes about by uh, respecting uh, people's liberty and embracing inclusive decision making. Uh, one of the things that Australia did during the Millennium Drought. This was especially true in Victoria, was to develop visioning processes whereby various experts representing the water management sector would work within small group discussions in public meetings uh, in cities and towns to get people not only to understand the gravity of the problem, but to honestly solicit input from various publics as to what sorts of things could be done, should be done, and that they were willing to uh, to pay for. And part of that process was driven by um, a good public policy process, but I must say part of it was also driven by mistakes that were made. Like? Uh, like, for example, the investment in or the proposed investments in very, very large and expensive Public works projects that uh, faced various uh, environmental challenges and economic challenges. And as a result, uh, there was some public opposition, which stirred the search for less impactful alternatives.
0: So, I now, as Richard Matthew, he's been on a couple of times too, and he's got some terrific bottom up kinds of adaptivity to, uh, to solving natural resource problems. And I think you've all been working together on this, so maybe that's what your source of your, your optimism is from that, to see the great yields that you all in your collaborations as this bottom-up kind of model has been working.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think empirically there's lots and lots of examples. We see this in Europe, uh, we see this in Australia, we even see it in parts of the Middle East at various times, that Uh, When you manage water as a local problem, when you think of it as the most vital resource we have and as something that everybody has a stake in, uh, you find not only that the public wants to be consulted, but they have a lot to say. Farmers have a great knowledge about conservation. uh, If you ask them uh, how to manage water well, Uh, You know, they're also uh, parts of a larger global market, so, you know, they face challenges, too. And likewise, local homeowners and residents have a lot of uh, knowledge about water, but uh, we need to develop ways of uh, consulting with them and including them in decisions and educating one another.
0: Well, I, I want to. Um, I mean, that's a great point you make because I guess if we look at it, it's, it's our own picture of water. Do we want to pee in it? We certainly don't want to. So I guess the ownership of that local resource makes complete logical sense. So um, that's that's a really great takeaway, David Feldman. <laughs> so for those of you who just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader, UCI urban planning professor with the so- School of Social Ecology. David Feldman is talking about his more upbeat take on how we can address. This drought that we don't know uh, when its end is going to be or when it will recur, but we we know for sure it's it's around us for the time being. Um, there's also uh, when we were talking about infrastructure, I'm hopping around. I'm not sure why. Uh, there's the prospect of seismic events that they are going to happen, and we we can't see that our infrastructure isn't built to withstand the let's say. Who knows, six, seven, eight uh, Richter scale quake, but that would definitely have a pretty catastrophic outcome with rupturing water importing infrastructure. What are we uh, doing? What, what is the bottom-up model doing about adapting in that sense?
1: Well, let's start with what utilities are doing. Uh, There have been measures that have been taken and are being taken, the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, for example. Uh, Many of the reservoirs that have been built in recent years uh, for off-stream water storage, uh, in fact, are designed in mind with the eventuality of having some disruption, some severing of perhaps the state water project or even a segment of the Colorado aqueduct, at least for some, you know, short period of time. And so a considerable amount of thought has been given to making sure that water can be stored, whether in reservoirs or in groundwater basins, water banking, uh, for those emergencies. Is that going to solve all of the problems or get us through the infrastructure problems? Of course not. Uh, But in the medium term, people are thinking about it. Longer term... I think this is another argument in favor of more distributed water systems, creating resilience within local communities, reusing wastewater, um, practicing conservation, making sure that we're um, you know, basically uh, replenishing our, our aquifers and our uh, harvesting stormwater so that in the eventuality that we have a major seismic event, uh, we're able to sustain ourselves on a local basis for some period of time, until the larger infrastructure can be restored.
0: Okay, all right. So it's being attended to, but it's we're going to be so glad somebody's been taking care of it while we are not even thinking about it. Oh yeah. So uh, um,
1: there are people thinking about it, definitely.
0: And another thing about uh, Australia that's maybe a bit different, uh, and or tell me if it isn't. Um, but we're we're all aware of the the economic sort of food chain here of water footprints that we're seeing upper income kind of insularity dealing with the water shortage and cutting back on consumption. Newport Beach has stepped up this week. They're going to be voting on, I think it's tonight, on a, 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 a reduction of a 25 percent of the household consumption. But do we learn any lessons about income inequality and a sort of indifference to water shortage crises? Well, it's an
1: interesting question. We usually ask these questions about equity when we're in a shortage. We don't usually raise these questions in sort of normal times. But there are some facts that we know about water consumption generally, and it's true in every society. Uh, There is a relationship between household income and water consumption. And uh, obviously enough, it comes from the fact that uh, the more affluent one is, uh, the likelihood of having a larger dwelling and more landscaping are apparent, and so water uses uh, increase. Uh, we also use water for more luxurious purposes perhaps than we were, would if we were of lower income. Uh, having said that, the questions of equity only arise if it turns out that people of lower income are actually paying for the more profligate water uses of those who are well off. And this is where we get into some of the debate that's going around right. in California, and obviously the courts have weighed in on this, about tiered rate systems. Right. Uh, is it you know fair for all of us to pay uh, exactly the same amount for water when some of us may be imposing a greater uh, burden on the water provision systems? And that's precisely what the court is weighing in on that. Can utilities demonstrate that, in fact, there is a burden being placed on them by the greater water uses? And it's something that the utilities are going to have to wrestle with as a result of this decision.
0: Well, as we close, what is your uh, your gut in terms I, I know you're not a, a legal expert, but, but you've been watching this tiered, a method in how, um, obviously, Australia has a different jurisprudence system, but what is your feeling, David Feldman, that as we close here, that uh, the, how the tiered pricing is going to sustain a legal challenge from various water district residents?
1: I think what we're seeing right now is that those utilities that practice tiered rates uh, on, a, on a high basis have already been thinking about the need and the means of defending and justifying how it is. Uh, that those tiered rate systems really reflect, um, shall we call them, burdens placed on the system and the need and the justification for higher costs for higher volume users. Uh, Utilities that are not maybe in that position are going to have to figure out a way to defend themselves in that way or to adjust their policies so that the tiers really do reflect uh, the uh, burdens being placed on the systems for providing the water.
0: And come up with a better brochure that makes the case so that <laughs> yes. it's, it sort of builds public support for the tiered system and sort of uh, puts off that um, that invigorated uh, yeah, exactly. uh, libertarian uh, response to yes. uh, p- pricing.
1: So, And in the meantime, we can all pitch in, and even if we're not paying more for the water we use, we can certainly conserve it. Nothing. There's nothing stopping us from doing that.
0: No, not at all. Well, David Feldman with UCI's School of Social Ecology, Department Chair of UCI's Policy, Planning, Design. Thank you for your time today.
1: You're quite welcome. Good to, have to be you. with you.
0: Okay, thank you. We'll be right back after a, a brief station break uh, with Dr. Mark Lerner, and uh, stay tuned. That was the last call at the Oasis's main theme. Uh, James Familietti is in that particular uh, documentary. It was out about several years ago. It's a, a really good view, everybody. Now we're back to in the swing of another fine interview, I'm hoping, with uh, my next guest, Dr. Mark Lerner, pediatrician and the medical officer for the Orange County Schools. He earned his bachelor's of science at rutgers and completed his medical degree at the icon school of medicine at mount sinai and his residencies in emergency and pediatric medicine at boston children's hospital his subspecialties have been in general pediatrics and in developmental behavioral research he was last on the show when at his retirement several years ago from uc irvine we honored his decades of service and we have a lot of people that are wind in his wings at the Orange County Department of Education uh, who are terrific resources. He t- he's going to carry it f- all for all of them, but we'll s- direct you to all those resources uh, throughout the course of the interview. We're going to take up two items this morning that are of major concern. One is the e-cigarette phenomenon, and then we'll end with childhood immunizations. We are so very fortunate to have Mark Lerner back on the show. Welcome again to Ask a Leaner Dr. Lerner.
2: Thank you so much, Claudia. It's my pleasure to be on with you today.
0: Apparently, a a son of a nicotine-addicted person, researcher Lick invented e-cigarettes, I learned, in the year 2003, and now it's grown into a $3.5 billion business. And so uh, is the jury still out, or have we all figured out what the hazards are of e-cigarettes versus the traditional pack of Marlboros or uh, Camel Coffin Pins?
2: Right. Uh, I think that, unfortunately, um, e-cigarettes have not been fully studied. So anyone who is using an e-cigarette has uh, a couple of concerns. Um, First is, is that the, the full range of potential risks when used as intended is not completely known. Um, the second is uh, how much, uh, because of the variability, particularly in current standards, in how um, e-juices, the liquid, the nicotine-containing and flavor-containing um, items that are often utilized in vape pens or um, the various other um, uh, electronic nicotine delivery systems, Uh, how much is in there is not well known. So again, an individual consumer may not know how much of a potentially harmful product is being inhaled. And then there's still um, active um, research into whether or not there are potential benefits associated with using these projects. I think some folks are thinking that Well, we know how bad cigarette smoking is, and I I certainly would agree. It continues to be a major public health uh, concern for not only individuals in our country but around the world. Um, And uh, there is a reduction uh, in uh, some of the uh, tar and other components of cigarettes when using an e-cigarette. But the question is, is how much will this lead to a reduction in the diseases and premature deaths associated with cigarette smoking? Um, And that information is not yet known.
0: One thing that occurs to me while you're talking about this, Mark Lerner, is is there such a thing as a hazard to secondhand vapors?
2: Um, Yes. So there are concerns about that. again, the... study of secondhand vaping um, is uh, in its infancy. And so we don't have the range of research uh, which has been identified uh, in, uh, the, uh, in, in the same fashion as has happened with secondhand smoking. But concerns uh, have been broadcast by groups, including the American Academy of Pediatrics um, and others. Um, and so um, I think that um it, it is important uh, you know folks sometimes uh, are, are are assuming that what's being given off of an e cigarette um is a water vapor um but it's not uh, a water vapor and um um, it is I think appropriate for individuals when they're around and when they're around someone who is smoking or vaping to you know try and give them some space, uh, stay okay. away from them um, or, or try not to have folks um, uh, vape uh, in, in in a uh, an enclosed space uh, where there might be other individuals exposed.
0: So it's a lovely video that breaks it all down uh, with. Stacey Debo Reynolds on the Orange County Department of Education website, so that people can see uh, the what the components are and the wh- the 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 kind of the marketing campaigns, all kinds of things that we're not paying close enough attention to. And I want to get into that. I mean, it's it looks to be more insidious even than the Joe Camel campaign, which was trying to sort of cartoonishly appeal to young people that, as Stacey Diebel Reynolds shows, that the electronic nicotine delivery systems look like uh, somebody's art supply kit. I mean, you can hardly distinguish it from something uh, as benign as uh, markers and things like that. I
2: think that there's a real need for um, parents, for example, um, to come to know more about uh, e-cigarettes uh, and the various forms, whether they're hookah pens, uh, e-hookahs, vape pens, um, that are present and, um, and that may be being uh, used by um, youth uh, around uh, our county. Our particular concern um, in the um, and uh, the nicotine delivery systems uh, is for their uh, risk to youth. And as the Department of Education, we're thinking about our students and right. looking at statistics, which are showing um, two or three hundred percent increases annually in the in the uh, number of students who are using these pens. It is illegal to sell or to give away an e-cigarette uh, or one of these other um, similarly acting products um, to students who are under 18 years of age. And I think that, you know, as, as with many uh, um, uh, items which are in the public domain and may come with some risk, um, adults have the right to make choices about uh, what they would like to put into their bodies and how they would like to assume risks when we have incomplete information. But I think that the risk um, for a number of um, Uh, segments of our population really should not be undersold, and that's the risk for pregnant women um, to their developing fetuses and the brains uh, of their developing fetuses and uh, to children whose brains are in a period of very active development uh, and are at risk. When you mention Joe Camel, we see that the e-cigarette companies are utilizing Many of the elements of the playbook, which have been used by cigarette companies over the decades, to uh, gain the public's eye. But behind that, they have a hammer, and that hammer is nicotine. Uh, and nicotine is as addictive um, as um, some of the most addictive components um, uh, in uh, uh, On our the cardic- um, armamentarium. People have compared uh, the addiction quality of nicotine to that of heroin. And so, you know, when these young kids who are under 18 are being exposed or think that they're engaging with a risk-free product that has a certain um, cool style, um, they, in fact, um, are putting themselves at risk uh, for lifelong nicotine dependence.
0: For those of you who've joined us, my guest in this portion of Ask a Leader on Radio KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine is Dr. Mark Lerner. He is a pediatrician and the medical officer for the Orange County Schools. We're talking in this portion about e-cigarettes, vaping, and all, and all the like. Uh, it's, it's, you've made the case then it's a bit of a gateway to uh, other nicotine products, maybe uh, besides that other addictive substances.
2: Well, again, I, I would like to stay with what we know, which okay. is, is that it is a risk for nicotine addiction. And nicotine itself for children and, and for developing um, 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 babies uh, before birth uh, is itself uh, a uh, an unhealthy product. And so um, we see... That you know, youth who are using cigarettes um, may in fact, um, have other kinds of um, substances in their life choices. Uh, I really don't want to um, say that a nicotine addiction uh, will in and of itself uh, lead another uh, lead a, uh, um, uh, a child to uh, try other substances. Um, but I'm concerned about um, a lifelong nicotine use. We know that um, nicotine, um, appears to be implicated in the development of some inflammatory conditions. Okay, it can narrow um, airways and weaken the immune system, uh, in addition to irritating the mouth. But it also has effects in terms of heart attack and stroke risk. And this is so. If you if you get rid of the the issue of the tars and the other many components uh, of um, tobacco, um, you're still. Uh, for example, in the situation where you may be at risk for the formation of of plaques or uh, blockages in blood vessels um, uh, and uh, uh, all the cardiac and and brain risk associated.
0: And that comorbidity certainly casts a die for health for the rest of that person's life, how to uh, manage other health complications, and that that is a stumbling uh, disposition there. Um, So, we're talking about nicotine addiction as a starter system, and you talk about that on uh, some articles that you've posted on the Orange County Department of Education website, and that is for folks to us uh, go to o c d e. u s uh, forward slash healthy kids gets you get you some things there's the projectalert.com and there's the not so safe.org that that gives you uh, lots of information folks on the electronic cigarette selection um, and I just want to go back the one thing you mentioned Dr. Mark Lerner was that the there there's a choice adults have but well, there's an obligation, as you said, it's, it is illegal to provide a minor with a vaping. I mean, that's anybody. I mean, a parent, uh, n- nobody, I mean, no adult is, uh, is allowed to get it for, for their under 18-year-old they're in the association with.
2: And, again, there's currently a prohibition from dispensing e-cigarettes on vending machines, but the advertising um, helps to create attraction. I think that there is, to a certain degree, a conflict um, from my point of view um, in the industry, which uh, feels that, in in a positive way, uh, they are offering a non-cigarette, non-tobacco substitute Uh, which provides a smoking experience and pleasure to adults who already are addicted um, to tobacco and nicotine. Um, And so I think that they would like the opportunity to be able to have their product uh, promoted and readily available to um, nicotine-addicted smokers. But on the other hand, the same attraction uh, which uh, is directed towards those adults is in the general public discourse. And it is seen by teenagers, uh, whether it's Hollywood stars smoking um, nicotine delivery systems on late night TV uh, or in a variety of other settings, uh, individuals puffing their smoke rings, you know, who have uh, public cachet, these things are attractive to our youth and can help to contribute um, to, uh, I think, some of the uh, interest uh, which has uh, driven the percentage of youth who have used um, e-cigarettes, for example, in some surveys uh, within the course of the last month from numbers that were less than 1% um, up to 2 to 3% in middle schoolers Whoa. and up to um, 6% in high school students. And so this is, you know, again, uh, a product which is not legal um, for students but which is being used prominently by students.
0: And a confounding factor here is that it's not regulated. There's FDA's proposed changes as of last fall. Is there somebody sort of putting the weight on the scales to sort of draw out that to delay the any kind of promulgated rules?
2: So the FDA has been receiving public comment from for some time, and there have some been question There have been questions in the courts as to uh, whether or not they have. Uh, the um, responsibility and the legal right to extend their control over um, all of the various products which are associated with electronic nicotine delivery systems. Um, They have asked to have covered tobacco products to include um, uh, nicotine in a dissolvable form or a gel um, and in cigars and hookah and, and, and other types of Uh, Formats, But they've also asked to have uh, control over the components which lead to the uh, development of the delivery system, including the the tubes, the um, papers, the flavorings. The flavoring is an important area. Um, Folks are taking flavorings which have been deemed to be safe for ingestion. They may be in foods and the like but have not been delivered in this concentration to the lung. And so the fact that you're putting it into a different part of the body brings up questions in regards to safety automatically. And so, again, I think that they – um, have received a lot of comments from individuals such as the American Heart Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics, um, the American Medical Association, and many public interest groups. Um, but at this point, um, there we are still waiting uh, to determine uh, what the role will be of the FDA um, in this overall process.
0: Well, we'll post all of these resources on the podcast. Meanwhile, I, I want to give a little bit of attention to the other looming hazard is that the school immunization the trend of opting out of having one's child immunized in the state legislature hurtling its way through legislative space is the senate bill 277 that requires school immunizations While there's still a doctor in the house, I thought it might be a public service to tackle the myths that persist in the public debate that confound the central goal of public health. So what, it's not settled yet. So we still have, we've got sort of some loopholes for families who are adamant that immunizations pose some kind of public health risk. Let's tackle some of those myths while we have a little time remaining, Dr. Lerner.
2: Well, again, I think it's important that um, this debate does reflect considerations of values—values uh, values comparing, um, you know, parental rights, um, requirements for, and values in a society of mandatory public education, um, the values of protection of the public health. Um, as a pediatrician, um, I am uh, tasked with caring for children with serious infectious diseases as part of my work. And right. I've had that chance to see children whose uh, lives have been harmed or ended um, because of preventable vaccine-preventable illness. And so I understand um, that there are a variety of perspectives um, uh, that are uh, being played out in discussions in Sacramento. Uh, Richard Pan is a senator uh, from the Sacramento area and is also an academic pediatrician. He's a faculty member at UC Davis in pediatrics. And he's joined with the um, former board president uh, of the Santa Monica Malibu School District, uh, Senator Ben Allen, to introduce this bill. Um, And this would remove uh, two components. It would remove religious exemptions and it would remove Remove personal belief exemptions as reasons why individuals uh, would be able to go to school um, without being fully protected uh, against uh, preventable uh, infectious diseases. The uh, approach um, we've, we've, has been in the past, very uh, variable state by state. So there are two states where this is already in place. Um, and what we recognize is the more work that a vaccine um, um, refusing family needs to do in terms of personal education and communication, uh, the more likely that a higher portion of students will be completely vaccinated and that herd immunity, that sense of general community protection that comes as we um, have 90 and then 92 and then 95% of individuals vaccinated, that really keeps a serious infection from gaining a foothold in a community. Uh, That is accomplished when we uh, do not give an easy opt-out um, to families, sometimes that's used even for convenience purposes or on on the basis of incomplete uh, understanding of the family of the risks and benefits of vaccine
0: and Alabama uh, did it.
2: Right? There are a few states um, that have have been involved i think Mississippi, Mississippi may be one of those states okay. but but the um uh, again, the consideration here is um, that we have a bunch of um, students who are not able to receive vaccinations because of their health concerns but are otherwise well and ready to go to school, and their um, uh, lives are put at risk right. if an infection like the measles infection with the recent um, uh, Orange the County outbreak, outbreak mm-hmm. um, uh, occurs. Uh, they may be at exceptional risk. And we also, uh, in all of our communities, have young infants whose immune systems are too young to be able to receive the proven vaccine schedule, which develops their protection. And so until they're old enough to begin their sequence, they also are at risk of severe and life-threatening illnesses, whether it be from measles or haemophilus influenza or whooping uh, whooping cough, all Mm. of these um, have a schedule, which has been established based on the combination of its effectiveness and um, uh, relative safety. In comparison to many of the treatments that we offer, uh, the risks, and all medical treatments come with risks, the risk associated uh, with vaccination um, is um, quite small. Uh, Many of the conditions we used to associate as possible, um, possibly being linked to vaccinations uh, have been proven uh, not to be associated with vaccinations. Uh, One example that people have heard a lot about is autism, where we have, Continuing growing research that shows no linkage between autism and vaccines, but also Dravet syndrome. Dravet syndrome is a serious seizure disorder, which was thought to be often reflecting uh, vaccine cause damage. But as science has advanced, we've come to learn that there's a genetically mediated channelopathy, a, um, a, a central nervous system uh, difference, uh, which leads to the seizures in these children who were thought previously to have been injured by vaccines. It just turns out that the age in which they begin to show this genetic uh, condition is around the time the vaccinations are introduced. And so um, people jumped to that association, even though it was not true.
0: Wow, so that 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 is very clear, has been sort of misappropriated for for a cause for those developments. I, I'm glad that you mentioned that, and it's and I know you're you must just shrivel up from the every time you see a high profile I don't know celebrity who makes that claim, and you have to walk all the way back, and you even have a GOP presidential candidate, a physician who's not willing to make the public health statement unequivocally about the the importance of childhood immunization so it must your work just even you think you had enough to do it becomes more <laughs> involved there so you you've, we've got these educators and Medical people involved in getting the california state bill two seventy seven passed, so it couldn't be more clear about the importance of the public good of having the herd maintained with as close to one hundred percent childhood immunization rates as, as possible. well, is I, that-
2: again, i I mean, I want to reflect the fact that there is a range of values okay. which go into how people see this debate, and there are some individuals who feel that individual freedom determinations, um, and should outweigh public health. Um, the history in the United States through the U.S. Supreme Court has established that public health considerations have been deemed to be, um, to trump um, yes. individual um, uh, liberty uh, dating back to the early 1900s, and there are multiple now Supreme Court decisions which have established um, the importance of um, uh, public health and, and the right of a, a state or a um, a uh, political uh, entity to to establish public health re, um, uh, regulations. um but i do un- I, you know I do understand uh, that there are uh, values differences that help to reflect uh, both sides of this debate. So it's been quite an impassioned debate. I believe that SB 277 has passed the judicial committee in the Senate and is moving on for consideration in appropriations and a full Senate vote. It still has to uh, be seen um, at the uh, on the Assembly side uh, and go to the governor. Um, the governor uh, in the the last vaccine bill that was introduced was to require parents um, to um, have a discussion with a healthcare professional um, as a uh, requirement in order to to then be able to ask for their uh, personal exemption. Um, that process did reduce the number of personal exemptions by about 15 to 20 percent. That's an inroad. The, gov- the governor hand wrote in um, to his acceptance of the bill that he was adding a religious exemption, which was not originally in the bill. So, again, there are many steps in this process, and you know, the process of generating even public health oriented legislation uh, is one which uh, uh, sometimes uh, reflects um, a, a range of views uh, in, in final legislative um, content.
0: Well, you've got your work cut out for you continuing with this education process that's an earnest crowd that has as you said the range of 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 values and I but I I think the the earnestness is there but I think um it's not backed up with real hard examination of the the most recent research the most recent data it's a kind of a uh, it's a more ephemeral ephemeral logic that's being applied and i i don't mind being sort of uh, uh, putting out the the uh, opinionated content because it's uh, i i checked out some of the websites that were talking about uh, this keeping this so-called choice it's choice and natural lots of of uh, ephemeral kinds of references that are uh, undermining that public health goal and i i understand how much as I say, you got your work cut out for you to to get out the message, so the Orange county department of Education website, I believe must cover this to some extent so um
2: well again i, I you know there are a number of school districts including l a u s d who have taken a formal opinion on s b two seventy seven I don't think that there is one from um uh, the Orange County Department of Education, again, the primary focus of educational entities is to provide an excellent uh, um, uh, education and prepare children for their futures. Uh, um, one of the good resources in Orange County um, and around our state, there are two resources I would recommend you okay. to. Uh, one would be from the Orange County Immunization Coalition, and the other would be from the California Immunization Coalition.
0: California and the Orange County. Well, we'll keep that one up there, too. Well, I'm so glad for the time. Dr. Mark Lerner, pediatrician and medical officer for Orange County Schools, thanks for your time today.
2: Thank you very much for inviting me to speak with you today. All right.
0: Well, I've got a few bits of some uh, announcements the uh, coming up here today and the rest of the week and the rest of the season. Check out illuminations.uci.edu, their website, the Chancellor's Doe, Julia Lepton's leadership and the program Simply Keeps on Giving. This week is loaded. Tonight is Here One Day, and the film is gonna be presented at the Humanities Instruction Building. Filmmaker Kathy Leichter will be uh, at the on the premises to for discussion after the film. Participatory Circle Painting featuring artist Hip Nguyen on Friday, and for those of you who heard Jane Page's earlier interviews on my show, Shake and Shakespeare is continuing. So bringing on uh, next week, Jan Meslin and friends from Community Initiatives for Visiting Immigrants in Confinement. CIVIC is their acronym. They'll take up the new Immigration Reform Initiative and how we can all pitch in. And in advance of that interview is their big fundraiser this Saturday, May 17, from 3 to 6 in Costa Mesa. The details for that event are available by contacting Jan herself at jmeslin at endisolation.org or just look up the website endisolation.org Talk with you next week. Thanks for listening, everyone. Well, God bless the child that's got his own that's got his own